I want to thank Brother Greg for doing a wonderful job leading us in our singing this morning. Thank Brother Elliot for his wonderful words at the table and all of our brothers in Christ, Brother James, all the, the brothers in Christ that have led us in any form of our, our worship to God. I really, really appreciate it. You did a wonderful job. In Acts chapter 4, in verse number 32, the Bible says this, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. What a great statement. What do you agree? What a powerful statement. What a beautiful description of the Lord's church in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. If you hopefully remember from your Bible reading that we did in the book of Acts a couple of months ago, in Acts chapter 2, we can read about the beginning of this church, this church in Jerusalem. Remember in Acts chapter 2, we see firsthand how this church got started. We see that this church, this church in Jerusalem, got started with 3,000 believers, according to what we find in Acts 2 and verse 41, and then it grew to at least 5,000 men by the time you get to Acts 4 and verse 4. When the Bible says the church grew to 5,000 men in Acts 4 and verse 4, please understand that the word men there is not being used generically. The word men there in that verse is a reference to adult males. There were at least 5,000 adult males in the church by that time. That's not counting the, the women and the children who were also part of that church. You see, some scholars suggest that before this church was forced to disperse because of persecution, it could have been as large as 15,000 people. It could have been as large as 20,000 people. It could even have been as large as 25 or 30,000 people. This was a big church. This was a growing church. This was a thriving church from the time this church began until the time it was forced to scatter. The Bible says this church grew and it grew and it continued to grow. In fact, not only did this church grow, not only did it be joined with, with new faces each and every day, but based on what we find here in Acts 4 and verse 32, this church also remained one. This church also remained united. It also consisted of people who were of one heart and one soul. That's what the Bible says there in Acts 4 and verse 32. This church was big, but it still was a church. That was of one heart and soul. That's how Luke describes the church. And I got to tell you, that language he uses there is very impressive. It is very powerful. It is language that actually indicates the remarkable sense of love and closeness in this church. It is language that shows us that even though this was a big church, even though this was a church that consisted of thousands and thousands of people, the group was not cold, distant, and indifferent towards one another. 
They were not a group that was just content with seeing each other on Sunday to worship God and said they had genuine relationships. They had fellowship. They had spiritual union in every possible way, in their prayers, in their worship, in their conduct, in their work. They were of one heart and one soul. That's how the Bible describes the closeness of this early church. The question is, how did they become that way? How did they become this con this kind of congregation? How did they develop into a spiritual body of people that were so closely connected and in tune with each other that it was just like they had the same heart and the same soul? How did they become one heart and soul? Well, this morning in this study, I want to give you four things, four things that I think contributed to them being this kind of church. First, I want to submit to you that the Jerusalem church that we read about in the book of Acts became a church that was of one heart and soul because of their devotion to the Lord. Because of their devotion to the Lord, particularly because of their devotion to Jesus as Lord. I want you to go in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2 this morning, okay? Put your Bible marker at Acts chapter 2. Some may wonder, why do I like preaching so much from Acts chapter 2? Well, I like Acts chapter 2 because it is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. In fact, many refer to Acts 2 as the hub of the Bible. In other words, everything before Acts 2 is pointing towards it, and everything after Acts 2 is pointing back to it. There's some amazing things that take place in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, if you remember, the Apostle Peter preached a very famous sermon. He preached a famous sermon that convicted thousands of Jews in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This sermon convinced 3,000 people to be baptized for the remission of their sins. My question is, do you by any chance remember what the point of the sermon was? Do you by any chance remember the thesis? What was the main point of this famous sermon in Acts chapter 2? Well, I submit to you this morning that the main point of Peter's sermon is found in verse number 36. In verse number 36, we see what this sermon was all about. In verse number 36, we see the point of verses 22 down to verse number 35. We see that the reason why he mentioned the miracles of Jesus in verse 22 and the reason why he mentioned the death of Jesus in verse number 23, and the reason why he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus that was seen by many eyewitnesses in verses 24 down to verse number 35 is because he wanted to convince these people of exactly who Jesus was. He wanted to convince these thousands and thousands of Jews of the identity of Jesus. In verse number 36, he says, Therefore, that is based on everything I've said so far, based on everything I've said about the miracles of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the, and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. Some of your translations may say, know most assuredly. Let all the house of Israel know most assuredly. Let all the house of Israel believe with confidence that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Notice the point of Peter's sermon. The point of this famous sermon, one of the most famous sermons in the Bible, is to convince these people of the identity of Jesus. It is to convince these people 
that Jesus was two things, that he was the Lord and that he was the Christ. When Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, he means that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the word Christ is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah means to anoint or set apart. To anoint or set apart. In the context of Jesus, it means that he had been anointed or set apart by God to save the world from sin. To redeem man, to provide an avenue for men to receive forgiveness and reconciliation unto God. Peter wanted these people to know that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. But not only did he want them to know that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, he also wanted them to know that he was the Lord. He says that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. When Peter says that Jesus is the Lord, what he means is that Jesus has all authority and power. He means that Jesus is the supreme ruler over all things. He's the king. He's the master. He is the one that we should submit to in every aspect of our lives. That's what Peter means when he calls Jesus the Lord. And let's just be honest about it this morning, brothers and sisters. This fact about Jesus makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You see, for a lot of people, for a lot of religious folks, they don't mind having Jesus the Messiah. They don't mind having Jesus the Christ, but they really don't want Jesus the Lord. They really don't want Jesus who has supreme authority over them. They really don't want the Jesus who has the inherent right because he made them to tell them exactly how to live their lives. You see, for most people, especially for most Americans, the last thing they want is a Jesus like like that. The last thing they want is a Jesus who's telling them what to do, who's telling them how to live their lives. For most people, especially for most Americans, they don't want a Jesus who's going to tell them who to marry and how to raise their kids and how to live and how to talk and, and how to behave in every aspect of their lives. They don't want that kind of Jesus. Instead, you know what they prefer, especially around this time of the year? What most people want is they want that little baby Jesus, don't they? They want that Jesus that they can picture in a manger, looking innocent, wrapped in a cloth, with a heavenly glow on him, and a bunch of animals around him. They want a Jesus who's too young to, to talk yet. He's too young yet to give commandments. To speak and proclaim the will of God, to call people into faithful service to God. For most people, they want the baby Jesus. They don't want Jesus the Lord. They don't want that Jesus. The question is, what about us? Do we want that Jesus? Do we want Jesus the Lord? Do we want the Jesus who calls us into full submission, not just when it comes to the things we do as a church, but also when it comes to the things we do in our daily lives. Also when it comes to how we behave in our marriages and how we raise our kids and how we conduct ourselves on our jobs 
and how we treat other people and how we talk and in how we dress and even in how we choose to think. Do we understand that following Jesus requires that we even bring our thoughts into full submission to his will? The brethren in Jerusalem understood that. Before being baptized for the remission of their sins, they believed that Jesus was the Christ and he was the Lord. They devoted themselves to him as the Lord, but not only did they devote themselves to him as the Lord. A second thing that contributed to them being one heart and one soul was their devotion to the truth. Their devotion to the truth. Now, when I say truth this morning, please understand that I'm talking about something very specific, okay? When I say truth this morning, I'm talking about the word of God. In John 17 and verse 17, Jesus called the word of God truth. I'm talking about the word of God. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the revelation that came from heaven through the Holy Spirit and was given to the apostles. In Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42, in Acts 2 and verse 42, after telling us about how 3,000 of these people obeyed the gospel and became Christians after hearing the preaching of Peter, it says they, these 3,000 believers, they were continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. We just did that, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, there's a lot I could say about this verse this morning, but due to time, I just want to focus on one particular thing. I want to focus on the language, the apostles' teaching. Some of your translations may say the apostles' doctrine. That's okay because both sets of language mean the same thing. Both sets of language tell us that when it came to the mentality of the early disciples, unlike many religious folks today, doctrine to these people was important. Doctrine was vital. Doctrine was something that they, that they devoted themselves to every single day. The Bible says they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Don't tell these people doctrine is not important. Doctrine was important to the early Christians, and it should also be equally important to us today. Like those first century disciples who were of one heart and one soul as a congregation of God's people today, we too should never be led by our opinions. We too should never be led by our personal feelings or our emotions. Instead, we need to be led by the doctrine of the apostles. We need to be led by the word of God. We need to be led by the gospel. The apostles' doctrine, which is the gospel or the word of God, is the main thing that should be influencing everything we do in this place. It is the main thing that should be influencing how we worship and what we teach and what we preach and who we appoint to be our leaders and even the kind of work that we choose to participate in. I want you to go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, have you been keeping up with your Bible reading in, in the book of 1 Corinthians? I hope you have. I hope you've been keeping up with that Bible reading because 1 Corinthians is such an important book in the New Testament. If you've been keeping up with your Bible reading in 1 Corinthians, then you know, you know, you will agree with me when I say that this church in Corinth was a pretty messed up church, right? Oh, yes, it was a pretty messed up church. 
We think we got problems today in the Lord's church. Our problems are nothing compared to what was going on in this church. This church had all kind of kind of issues. They clearly were not a church of one heart and one soul like you read about in Acts chapter four. When you look at first Corinthians chapter five, remember, as we said this morning, one of the problems that was going on in this church was they were tolerating a brother and, and sin among them who was in, who was with his father's wife. They were in fellowship with a brother and immorality with probably his stepmother. In first Corinthians six, we see that they were they were suing each other. I mean, they, they had such hostility towards each other that they were actually taking each other to the public courts. In 1 Corinthians 7, we see that they had problems with marriage and divorce. That's something that's still controversial among brethren in our time today. In 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, we see they had problems with idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see they had problems when it came to to the Lord's Supper. They were not taking the Lord's Supper properly. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we see they had problems with exercising the miraculous spiritual gifts in a decently and orderly way. In fact, they were even in competition over their spiritual gifts. Everybody wanted to be a tongue speaker for some reason. And then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we see that they even had problems when it came to, to the resurrection. They even had problems with understanding that there was going to be a, a bodily resurrection. That is something that is a, a key cornerstone to the Christian faith. But probably the biggest problem they had is stated for us back in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 11. The reason why they had all these other problems is because of this problem stated in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 11. There Paul tells us that when it came to these brethren... They had quarrels among them. Do you see that? They had quarrels. The idea of quarrels means they had division among them. They had fussing. They had fighting. They were allowing petty differences over trivial matters to mess up their work. That was their issue. This was a divided church. And the question is, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid quarrels? How do we avoid division? How do we avoid becoming like so many churches today who major in the minors? How do we avoid allowing things like the color of carpets? And whether or not you have cushions in the pew and, and what temperature you're going to set the auditorium. How do we allow or, or not allow trivial matters like that to tear us to keep from tearing us apart. How, how do we do what Paul talks about in verse 10 of chapter 1 when he says that we need to speak the same mind and the same judgment? How, brothers and sisters, do we do what Paul says in that verse? Well, I want to suggest that we do that by making sure we do exactly like the Christians in Jerusalem. Not the Christians in Corinth, but the Christians in Jerusalem. You see, the Christians in Jerusalem were able to be a church of one heart and one soul because they were committed to following the same standard. They were committed to following the word of God. They were committed to making sure that Bible teaching and Bible preaching was at the core of everything they did. Let me tell you something. When a church is committed to doing that, 
When a church is committed to solely following the standard God has given, which is the doctrine of the apostles, they'll never be divided. They'll never have quarrels. They'll never have confusion. They'll never allow the devil to allow trivial matters, to use trivial matters to tear them apart. Instead, they will be exactly how God wants the church to be. They will have unity. They'll have peace. They'll be of one heart and soul like the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was of one heart and soul because they were devoted to the Lord. And they were devoted to truth, the apostles' doctrine. But then the third thing that contributed to this was their devotion to one another. Devotion to one another. Go back to Acts again, please. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse number 44. In Acts 2 and verse number 44, after telling us that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine, it says in verse 44, And all of those who had believed, this is the same church, same group, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them, notice, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The breaking of bread there in that verse is not a reference to the Lord's Supper. There in that verse, the breaking of bread is a reference to common meals. These Christians ate common meals together. They spent time together in the temple, in the worship assembly, and they also spent time together outside of the worship assembly. They were not spiritual hermits. They enjoyed each other's company. They shared with each other. They spent time together. Now go back to Acts chapter 4 again. We go back to Acts 4. Look again carefully at verse 32. In verse 32 it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Why? Well, Luke goes on to explain. And now one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Do you see that? Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want you to really allow those verses to soak in your heart for just a moment. I want you to notice how unselfish and caring and loving these disciples were towards one another in a time of great need. During a time when many brethren had lost their jobs and they had lost their homes and they had become outcasts in their families because they had made the decision to leave Judaism in order to become Christians. During this time of great distress, the brethren among them who were well off and had much, they helped them. They shared with them. They used their material wealth to come to their assistance. People like Barnabas did that. People like Barnabas were selling property and giving the proceeds of the sales to the apostles so the apostles could then distribute the funds among the needy brethren. There was a lot of generosity in the church 
in Jerusalem. And I firmly believe with all my heart that that kind of generosity and love certainly contributed to them being of one heart and soul. It contributed to the unity in this church. And just like it contributed to unity for them in the first century, it'll also do the same for us. It also do the same for the Monta Vista Church of Christ. In fact, because of what I have personally seen over the past 18 months, I believe it already has. You know, one of the things that makes it such a blessing and an honor and a privilege to be part of this church is here we are of one heart and soul. We're one heart and soul. Despite all the trivial differences we have among us, despite the different backgrounds and economic statuses and races and genders and, and different preferences when it comes to hobbies, despite all the differences when it comes to that petty stuff here in this place, we still strive to be one, don't we? We love the same Jesus, the same Bible. We're trying to get to the same place, heaven. We care about each other. We try to be nice to each other and, and love each other. That's true Christianity. True Christianity is about love, showing love to God, love to one another. In fact, one of the main ways in which we show love to one another in this place is manifested in the generosity that is shown uh, among the brethren. Let me tell you something. During the past 18 months that my family and I have been blessed to be with this church, we have seen brethren here help each other in so many different ways, especially during this time of pandemic we're living in. I have seen brethren here use their time and use their money and their strength and their homes and their vehicles and their talents and abilities and their prayers to help other people, to help members of this spiritual family who desperately need those things. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've seen that in just 18 months, and I know if I've seen it, the God of heaven certainly has seen it, and what he sees is what's most important. God has seen it. God has seen the work of all the Barnabases in this place. In fact, not only is God seeing the work of all the Barnabases in this place, God is pleased with the work of all the Barnabases in this place. He's glorified by the Barnabases. He's honored and very happy with all the Barnabases in this place. We have a lot of Barnabases here. And that's so important because when you have Barnabases, going to be able to have a church that is one heart and soul. This church is one heart and soul because of the devotion to the Lord, the devotion to the truth, the devotion to one another, but then forth and finally, I want to leave you with this. They also were of one heart and soul because of their devotion to the lost. Because of their devotion to winning the lost. Go back to Acts chapter 2 again, please. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 47. Acts 2 and verse 47 says, after talking about how these Christians spent time together in the worship assembly and outside of the worship assembly, it says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice how the people in the society in which they live liked the Christians. They were likable people. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers. Some of your translations say the Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. Notice how after initially telling us in verse 41 how this church started out with 3,000 people, Luke in verse 47 tells us that they didn't stop with 3,000. They were not content with 3,000. The Bible says that the Lord was able to add to his church every single day. Every single day there were people being added to the church. Every single day there were people being added to the kingdom of God. How was that possible? Well, that was possible because the early Christians, the early brethren in Jerusalem, they were busy teaching the gospel every day. They were busy trying to win the lost every single day. They were devoted to fulfilling the mission of evangelism every single day. They were doing that even though they were going through tough times, even though they were facing terrible persecution. In fact, I really like what the Bible says in Acts 8 and verse 4. Remember in Acts 8 and verse 4, how after telling us about the death of Stephen, Stephen is the first Christian that we can read about being murdered in the book of Acts. He's murdered by the Sanhedrin council. And then after that, Saul led a great persecution against the church, a great persecution. He was trying to destroy the church. He forced the, the Christians out of Jerusalem. But verse four, 4 says this, Acts 8 and verse 4 says, Therefore, even though Saul is trying to destroy the church, therefore those who have been scattered, those who were forced to leave Jerusalem, they still went about what? Preaching the word. They still went out preaching the word. Notice Notice how the brethren in, in Jerusalem were, were so committed to the work of evangelism. They were so committed to the work of winning the lost that they continued to do it, even though they were forced out of their homes. Even though they were forced out of the city of Jerusalem, they were still going out preaching the word of God. Talk about a high level of devotion to God. Talk about a high level of devotion to the gospel. Talk about a high level of devotion to the lost. The early Christians, even though their lives were at risk, they still continued to spread the word of God. Do you know what that shows us? That shows us, brothers and sisters, that God never wants the problems going on in the world in which we live to stop us from doing his work. God doesn't want a pandemic to stop us from doing his work. God doesn't want COVID to stop us from doing his work. God doesn't want COVID to stop us from inviting. And from trying to bring up Jesus in our daily conversations and from trying to set up Bible studies with people who we know who are lost. God wants us to understand that sin is too serious to put his work on pause. Sin is too serious to put his work on hold to the pandemic is over because sin is real. And because our Lord could come back at any moment, the work of evangelism, the work of spreading the gospel in Phoenix, Arizona, it is urgent. It is of the utmost importance. It is something that we can never allow the devil to distract us from. I don't care how long this pandemic is going to last. We're not waiting until a vaccine comes out before we start spreading the gospel. We're going to spread it because this work is too urgent. 
The early Christians were of one heart and soul because no matter what challenges came their way, no matter what internal challenges came their way, no matter what external challenges came their, their way, they were devoted to the lost. They were devoted to winning the lost with the gospel. What I just want you to understand is this small statement in Acts 4, it tells us so much about the early Christians, doesn't it? It tells us so much about their hearts. It tells us so much about what they were devoted to. It tells us that 2,000 years ago, they were devoted to Jesus as Lord, and they were devoted to the truth, and they were devoted to one another, and they were even devoted to winning the lost. This statement sums up perfectly what the saints in Jerusalem were all about, and let it also continue to sum up perfectly what we are all about. Let us continue to be a congregation. It is of one heart and soul. That's what God wants for the spiritual family. The question is, are you part of the spiritual family? Are you part of the church, the church that we can read about in the Bible? Have you done what the Christians in Jerusalem did 2,000 years ago to, be, to become Christians? Have you believed in Jesus, believed that he's the Christ and the Lord and repented of your sins and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? If you've yet to do those things, but are willing to do those things today, the Lord will save you. And he'll add you to his church just like he did and has been doing for people for 2,000 years. And so if we can help you with that in any way at all, come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.